from my perspective, having sat in both inside sales and in marketing, having been an SDR leader in the past as well, is that the best case scenario is for SDRs to report into sales. SDRs are a lot of time to the lifeblood of the organization from a talent perspective where you're hiring the SDRs and hopefully you're bringing them across the organization into marketing, into customer success. But most commonly, maybe 75% of their promotion path is going to be into a sales group. And so making sure that they have the right competencies and skills to be successful in the next role, that most happens best when they actually sit inside of a sales organization and, and they're really closely to and partner with whoever runs the kind of closing roles. And so that I think is the ideal scenario. And yes, if you're listening to the podcast and you want to fight me on it, I'm totally welcome it. <laughs> totally all good. Yeah. I know it's going to happen. Um, Hey, Russell, welcome to the show. Great to see you, man. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. Hey, you want to take you back to your early days? What you got you into marketing in the first place? Was there ever an aha moment going, this is what I want to do? This is what I've always dreamed to do? Yeah, I certainly was in a 10-year-old in grade school thinking about, gosh, what do I, what do I want to be when I grow up? And, and it being marketing, that was not the answer. I had all the regular answers, right? My grandfather was a surgeon, so I was like, maybe I'll go into the medical field. Firefighters were really cool, so I was like, maybe I'll go be a firefighter. But ultimately, none of those things ended up playing out. I jumped right into the finance world, and I just spent a little bit of time at Morgan Stanley. The culture, unfortunately, wasn't for me. The money is really good. Culture is not for everybody, I would say. Uh, and so I ended up stepping out of... Uh, finance and jumping into sales. And I did an inside sales. Role. You know, I did that for a little while. I started to see some success. And then as I started to explore what was next for me, I started to just talk to different people in the organization. And there wasn't anything about marketing in particular, like the, the craft of marketing that really enticed me. But really, there was a leader in marketing who ran demand generation at the company that I was at. That was very clearly indicating to me, hey, I'm going to invest in you. I'm going to teach you what I know. And you're some young guy who's super excited and you clearly seem really motivated. I'm willing to spend, spend the time that it's going to take to get you to where you want to go. And so I was like, that's what I want, right? A lot of times they, they talk about don't choose your seat on the rocket ship, just get on the rocket ship. Right? And for me, that rocket ship is the, the rocket ship of learning. And so I started to try to figure out where am I going to learn the most? And that's how I ended up with marketing. It ended up working out really well, though, because as I mentioned, the finance space, I also did hip hop dance for a really long time. I did hip hop dance for about 15 years. So I was looking for a function that was both like quantitative and creative at the same time. And marketing brought those things together. So I didn't choose marketing for that purpose. But as I got into it, it really started to just really make sense. I didn't choose marketing, marketing chose me. You're one of those guys. But it's it's pretty interesting going from numbers to marketing. I I guessing is not the most normal journey into marketing that that people would go down. But you make huge points. Like having a good mentor, somebody's gonna invest time in you when you're starting out, like that's what can fire your career up, right? Having someone who's gonna spend that time and effort to get you going. So when you get into to to marketing, you come from numbers, come from SDR world. What was some memorable first marketing? things that you did when you get in new 
not something you dreamed of from your whole career. What's something cool that happened early on in your career? Yeah, yeah. I would say that the early days of marketing were absolutely unclamorous. I'm going to get to do all these fun things, right? I'm going to get to work on advertising and do all that kind of stuff. Really, the first things in marketing, I think I moved to the team unit. One of the first things that I was assigned was, hey, Russell, you want to go work on this event? I'm like, I think, what is that? They're like, I need to go order a bunch of tablecloths. It's just make sure that they're the right color. You didn't make sure that the stage has all of the right polos and the right outfits. So that way, they're staffing the brief and they're representing the brand. So I had to hunt down every single person in, in this building that we were in to go make sure that they have the right uniform. Uh, and then, of course, you, you got to stand around at a booth for, for 10 hours in a day and uh, make sure that we had the right cords to plug in the laptop and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so the early days were glamorous whatsoever. And when people are coming into marketing, I oftentimes educate them, work. you're going to get to the fuck. And gone, we've done Super Bowl commercials. You've been in the Wall Street Journal. There was a lot of fun and we get to dictate what markets we play in, right? What industries, what regions, that type of stuff. That's all fun and strategic. But the early days certainly aren't that, but they teach you a lot and they, they, they callous the mind and they callous the soul to make you truly accurate, which is great too. He doesn't understand anything you just said because he's used to just turning up and his shirt's there and his laptop's plugged in and everything's ready. Yeah, people actually <laughs> do that, mate. Actually, like a whole team puts your stand Exactly. Uh, hey, we'll come back to Gong, Russell, but we've been speaking to a lot of the early stage companies, as you can imagine, in our current role. Product market fit is obviously on top of the list. Secondly is sales. Marketing is often lost on them. And you talked about being an SDR and a lot of them actually assume that SDR outbound is somewhat marketing. What actually is marketing for early stage? What does it even look like? Can you give us some insights on that? It depends on every company. It's going to work a little bit if you're starting a company when you want to have a PLV motion, a lot of time your marketing time is going to be spent on what is to know the growth model, what are the different things that we want to keep in product to get people to. For, for a company that's somewhat similar to Gong, like an enterprise software type company in a category that was just getting started that nobody really knew about. We kind of, like nobody had a line item in their budget. For us, what it looked like in the early days was very much like, and this would be my recommendation to a lot of the founders that are listening. It's like, how can we make a brand name for ourselves? How can we do differentiated in the market? How can we just get eyeballs to start to pay attention to who we are and, and what we do and what we talk about? And so I use another kind of gong example. In the early days, we invested a ton in content marketing and we came out with this thing called Gong Labs where we analyze all of the conversations that we have with all of our customers and anonymize that data. And then we put back out insights into the market, things like how does swearing impact your deals? How does having video on or off impact your deals? Things like that, that people started to understand, hey, there is a science to the art of sales. And it's starting to get people to pay attention. Like, hey, this company puts out a lot of interesting content. I should follow them. And then that followership ended up becoming, hey, we should have a conversation, explore what this could look like within our business. And so early days was a ton of content marketing, but that's the gone example, right? And it may not always be that where you want to spend a lot of your marketing. Things a little bit. <clears throat> you mentioned content marketing, right? And that's played such a key role in Gong's success. We had Chris Olob on the show. He mentioned something similar. 
And social media has played such a huge part, Russell. So can you give us some tips or advice as to how does one then get those raving fans and how do you share those insights? How do you get the inertia and momentum behind a brand? Yeah, I think it starts with having a differentiated point of view. And a lot of times, and we really don't have with Judy Lettergore, who's our former CMO, now Chief of Angelist. We used to say to the team, what folks different is better than better. And it was always in to differentiated point of view that then created that brand kind of follow. Yes, not every single person in sales on planet Earth is going to agree with us. When we went out there and said that you should start to mirror your prospects, and sometimes when you're mirroring your prospects, if they're swearing a ton, you might start swearing a ton too, and that actually ends up helping your deals. There was a lot of people who went on there on social media and were like, this is blasphemy. You should not be putting that out into the market. People said we were crazy, right? So you're not going to win over everybody, but being a smaller organization, you have to have a differentiated point of view. You can't just be another plus one to the rest of the market. And over time, you'll slowly start to capture more and more people as you expand the, the differentiated points of view that you're putting out there. But being different is, is certainly better than, than being 1% better. Don't sit on the fence. Be polarizing. <laughs> You're what I mate. When we talk to early stage founders and we're going through things, I mean, people understand metrics for sales really well, right? They can throw things out at you. They understand ARR and I've got these numbers. The number and metric that I very rarely see from founders is anything to do with marketing. And being that you're a numbers guy, this should be right up your alley. Look, what, especially early on, what do you think are important numbers that people should actually, what metrics should people be looking at when they're starting their business? And I realize it depends on motion too, but just a couple that you think are important. Really like basic answer, but marketing at the end of the day should also be measuring themselves on revenue and pipeline. I think it starts there, right? If there is no dollars coming in the door, there, there's no fuel to create anything that you want to do long-term, right? So I think where marketers go a little bit awry is, is they'll come into an early stage organization and they'll say, oh, like we need to be measuring LinkedIn followers. We need to be measuring social engagement. We need to be measuring website traffic or MQLs, right? And they'll come up with something that's not ultimately tied to what the board cares about, the immediate success of the organization. And so that's to start first, no matter what I find in revenue, as the North Star metric also for marketing. Now, there's reasons why that sends, I think, marketers arrive, especially in the earlier days, because then they end up thinking a little bit too short-term as opposed to thinking long-term as well. So there are other things that you should obviously track, right? Some of the things that I've already mentioned, it's things like engagement on social. If you're in a new category, you need to command attention. Looking at engagement on social is a really powerful thing. It, it's an indicator of are you starting to build an audience that you can then monetize as your company matures as your category? And so it's something that Gong actually looked at a ton in addition, obviously, to our pipeline and revenue metrics. I would look at, and this is an interesting one, but I would look at net dollar retention as well. Or net revenue retention, net like retention, whatever the right stimulus for, for your business. And it's not oftentimes a, a metric that marketing leaders like both care about. But I think for marketing, it says a couple of things. It says, one, are we bringing in truly the right ICP, which ICP in large part should be driven by marketing and marketing should be the one who's helping the organization understand who the right ideal customer profile is. 
And two, it says, are, are you doing the right things like along the adoption journey, which marketing obviously has a, has a major home in as well. And so I point out a couple of those, but I think, Sharon, to your point, I think it also depends on what category you play or is it saturated? How many other you know, organizations are out there on the landscape, this motion, et cetera, et cetera. Hey, Russell, you spoke about alignment and particularly in sales and marketing, right? It's often a puzzle for most companies. What has Gong done so well in that space? Yeah, I think to your point, there's a lot. That's a mystery. Maybe let's start with what can go wrong maybe in most organizations and I'll talk about mm. uh, maybe what, what some of the, thing, the good things that Gong has, has done well. Uh, misalignment around what success looks like. I think that's oftentimes an area that people can go right with. I talked a little bit about failure and often like the long-term and short-term dynamic, but to expand upon that a little bit. Sales, of course, is oftentimes thinking about how am I going to hit quota for the month, the quarter, or for the year, right? And in marketing, yes, to my point that I made earlier, you have to be focused a lot on pipeline and revenue to make sure that the business is being fed for the short-term goals but also you can't be solely focused on like quarterly revenue because then you'll never solve for the direction that you want to go and the kind of the medium to the long term, whether it be one year or two years. So I think alignment around what success looks like is often challenge is a challenge. There's a big like personality piece too. A lot of times marketing leaders and sales leaders aren't like the, the same or compliment, even complementary personalities. And get a lot of people who are misaligned in that sense. I was talking to a company that I advised the other day and I was talking to their co-founder and he was asking me around sales and marketing alignment. He's, what are the things that we're doing wrong? Because we're clearly, we're not getting to where I want us to be as the co-founder. And I was like, have your CMO and your CRO actually spent any face-to-face human time together? And he was like, no, actually. So it's been over Zoom. And I was like, Getting them in the room together to understand one another on a human level is wildly important. But just getting to know each other on a human basis and making sure the personality is open to the second piece. Well, so I think those are some of the things that could that could go wrong. And in the sense of what we started to do pretty well at Kong, is starting to solve for some of those things, right? We always align on what mess on what metrics we're gonna be tracking. We have a, both a pipeline and a revenue council that meets together regularly to look at all the, the same pipeline metrics. And we're all speaking the same languages, using the same definitions, using the same data set. We meet weekly to discuss the forecast and where we're heading from our revenue perspective across the entire go-to-market leadership team, including our CFO and our CEO. So we're getting to what success looks like, I think, down decently well on the relationships piece. We've always made it a point to make sure that we're actively pulling in sales leadership and when marketing leadership is getting together and vice versa. And so for our CEO's quarterly revenue leadership offsites, it's either myself or somebody else representing marketing that's always going to be there to be the voice of marketing in the room to make sure that we're aligned on initiatives and priorities. Still things like getting together and opening applications that I think are really important for our sales and marketing success. And then not open up things like, and it's the moments outside of the meetings, actually, I'll call out to, it's even like sitting down for a drink with your sales leader to develop a relationship that has opened up doors. Like earlier this morning, we have a marketing event happening later this week for Dreamforce. And we actually need another host to join just because we have so many, like such high volume of customers and prospects. Normally that would be a slack or an email that hopefully 
sales leader will respond to you in a day or two days or three days. I literally can pull up my phone and give them a phone call and then it's solved straight away, right? It's only because of the moments of sitting down and getting one another that we can work. So the personality that I think we're doing pretty well, relationship building, I think we're doing pretty well. Um, and then I would say the third piece is, is being clear on roles and responsibilities, but also making sure that you're all operating where we are all one team kind of mindset or taking your functional hat off. And it's a little bit of a di- dichotomy, but you have to be clear on roles and responsibilities. Where do you own and what are you accountable towards? Or when are we actively handing off the baton or you become the owner and the accountable to? And then coming together in the sense of we're not protective over whatever responsibility we're discussing in the moment. We might be talking about SDR productivity. Let's not come in as somebody who owns SDR and somebody who's feeding into SDR, but rather let's come in as a group of leaders within the organization that need to do what's best for the organization. So having that kind of one team mindset without the functional hat on. I'd say those are a couple mm. of things that we're starting to do pretty well, have been doing pretty well. I'll, I'll take the the people alignment piece because it's something I'm super passionate about. And, and I think the, the point you're making, spending time with sales and marketing together, it takes away that friction of, of that they didn't do this and they didn't do this or he didn't do this. And what can devolve into pipeline meetings and other things is it becomes a he said, she said discussion, right? About, oh, geez, I couldn't hit my number because they didn't push enough things. If you can build those relationships you're talking about, do you find it makes your pipeline meetings more efficient? Because instead of blame games, you're actually getting a team of people working together to find outcomes. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Or I think a common scenario that will come up in those types of pipeline meetings, you'll be looking at a dashboard altogether. And as a marketing leader, I might call out and say, hey folks, it looks like activity is done. Or it looks like our rate of multi-threading is going down on a lot of our deals and i can say that as a, as a leader to a sales leader and then usually the response if you don't have a deep relationship is something like trying to protect your team or trying to kind of sign for a reposition and ask a question about a marketing metric in return and then it ends up becoming like this fortunately i'll i'll just play straight like this useless back and forth that doesn't advance the business forward right but if you have the relationship, I can understand if I'm calling those things out, I know our sales leader understands that it's not from a place of me trying to say, hey, you're not getting the job done or I'm trying to power your team and say anything about them personally. But rather, we're just coming together because we're the leaders that need to advance the business forward and all things go to market. And because we've developed out that relationship, it ends up becoming way more productive in terms of those meetings. Russell, functional leadership obviously makes sense as the business grows. But in the early stage where capital efficiency plays such a big part, would you have both the function reporting to the same leader? And if so, which one? And how would that work? Yeah, it's a question I get really often. Yeah. It's a spicy one, so I need to be a little bit careful. But I feel really passionately that both sales and marketing, I think that's more intel sales roles is a whole other topic of conversation. I want to come back to that too. But yeah, it's coming. Yeah. But I think sales and marketing should be supported to proceed. I don't think in the early days, depending on like the person having a CEO, if you have a technical CEO, if you have a more go-to-market focused CEO, I think it depends. 
And but I, I would say it should be the CEO and not even the COO in most cases. Again, it, it depends a little bit on where the focus is star, but having reports from the CEO, I think does a couple of things. But most importantly, it solves for the issue that I was describing earlier in the sense of if you have everybody reporting into one CRO in the beginning, and that's what I see most commonly when sales and marketing are brought together is they both report into the CR. Then you have the issue of the marketing leader need to be focused almost exclusively on the short-term challenges. And if we at Dong, for example, were only focused on the short-term, then we may have never done things like came up with a new category and try to get people rallied around an expanded category outside of what for us we evolved from conversation intelligence into true revenue intelligence. If we were only focused on hitting our short-term numbers, we probably would have just stayed with conversation intelligence and can continue to play that game. And we've been able to make that transition and expanded the market that we play in pretty significantly. And many of the other folks in the market are towards us. But now we're in a leadership position because we've been able to do that. Again, if we're only focused on the short term, we, could, we may not end up going that route. And so that's my strong belief in terms of where it should report into. I think the other benefit of having it report into the CEO is you end up with deeper access into the resources of the organization at the end of the day. You'll have moments when I was shocked I got when I had when I had this happen. I joined as a roughly our third marketer. I was one of the first hundred employees or so. We were only in seven figures of, of ARR at the time, to so $7 million. It was the first time I ever had an experience where I submitted a budget request for our first ever annual user conference, which we were thrilled about. We were really excited. And usually as a marketer, you go in there and you're like, this thing is going to get slashed in X, Y, and Z reason, right? And so you're going to build in on maybe a little bit of buffer. I hate to say it out loud again. Maybe I shouldn't be saying this on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, but you're usually going to build in a 10 or 20% buffer. You know that thing's going to come down your CFO sees it or, or your CEO sees it. And it was the first time where I ever walked in out of a budget review meeting for an event where our CEO said, hey, Russell, your budget is approved, but there's one issue. We need to increase it another 100 grand because I want to elevate who we're going to get as a celebrity keynote speaker to make sure that we're pulling people in. And we're truly making noise in, in the market. And if you're reporting to a CRO, it's a little bit harder for those types of moments to happen. It's easy for the CEO to do that in the early days. So that's the second point. I would say the third point in terms of reporting directly to the CEO is a lot of the early days in, in marketing in a smaller organization is truly understanding what is the vision and mission of the organization? What are the values? And truly that has to happen from the co-founders, ideally... Uh, or the CEO, if, if there's a professional CEO and put into the organization, doing that directly from the CEO's mouth is critical. Otherwise, you're not going to be telling an aligned story to the market. Mm. All free tips, mate. All solid tips and all I agree with. Do you want to circle back to inside sales? You said that's a whole nother beast. Where should that sit? It's a hot take. As you go on LinkedIn, there's pros and cons for either being in sales or marketing. But in your view, where should it sit and why? Yeah, I, I would. It's definitely a hot topic. It's an easy attention magnet, I'll say, mm -hmm. as well. And if you post about where should sales and marketing sit, it's immediately going to be people going to war in the, in the comments section of LinkedIn. I'll, I'll tell you what I think is the ideal answer and then what I 
what I say is like the advice that I give to mm-hmm. most organizations I talk to. I would say that the ideal answer from my perspective, having sat in both inside sales and in marketing, having been an SDR leader as well, is that the best case scenario is for SDRs to report into sales. SDRs are a lot of time the lifeblood of the organization from a talent perspective where you're hiring SDRs and hopefully you're bringing them across the organization into marketing, into customer success. But most commonly, maybe 75% of their promotion path is going to be into a sales role. And so making sure that they have the right competencies and skills to be successful in the next role, that most happens best when they actually sit inside of the sales organization and, and they're really closely to and partner with whoever runs the kind of closing roles and so that i think is the ideal scenario and yes if you're listening to the podcast and you want to fight me on it i totally welcome it <laughs> totally all good yeah. i know it's gonna happen um, i think that the the advice that i give most commonly though when the ideal state maybe is challenged is they should sit in the part of the organization that feels most passionate about their success. And a lot of times you're going to have, unfortunately, and this is true for both sales and marketing leaders, but you're going to have leaders that just don't care as much about the function. It, mm-hmm. it is a tough thing to want to invest time and effort into making successful. A lot of times it's earlier in career folks. It's a ton around enablement. It's a lot of back to basics things like how do you have a conversation? How do you objection handle? How do you understand accounts and customers? It's a lot of back to basics things that many leaders don't just can't candidly want to invest their time and effort into, especially in the earlier days. And you might have a sales leader who isn't passionate about SDR. So maybe that passion sits within the marketing realm and vice versa. And so ultimately it does take time, care, focus, especially in order to make that group successful. And so a lot of times I'm like, who's most passionate about it? Let's talk about why that is. I think you answered the question really well. If anyone wants to fight you, they can because they're wrong. The argument you made is the the best argument. It's about the people you're hiring and not 70% of those people's journey is going to be sales. So your sales leader should be spending time and driving them. If you find that the passion is in marketing, maybe you have the wrong sales leader and that's what I'd be looking at. Your job as a sales leader is to lead those people through the journey and your best SDRs are going to become your best AEs, you're going to become your best you know, field salespeople if that's the, the route you go down, enterprise salespeople. Like spending that time is super important. And we've got those marketing leading it and sales leading it. And the function can work, but for the, for the function to exceed and accelerate, and for the people inside it to prosper, sales has to lead. And if your organization is healthy, like you spoke about earlier, and your sales leader and your marketing leader are aligned, then there isn't any friction. And that's not an issue whereby marketing's, I need to own it so that I can say, look, I brought an MQL in and it got serviced. And now it's your problem because you didn't actually deal with it. We passed it on. And sales doesn't sit there going, you've passed on crap that we wouldn't have qualified if we owned it. That's again, an issue of leadership function, not working, not structure. And so I find it interesting when I read all this back and forth, I'm like, there's really no good reason why I would ever sit in marketing or why it should sit in marketing. The answers that you've got a problem higher up that you're not addressing and you're hiding it by going, actually, this should live in marketing. No one's articulated to me yet why it should live in marketing. Yeah, not we once. haven't come across one yet. It's a junior tier too, right? I think as Russ mentioned, a lot of them are young folks. So you want to make sure that they're 
lined up for success. So anyone who's passionate about shouldn't naturally be your sales leader because mm-hmm. that's where they're going to go into in future. Anyhow, most commonly, right? And most commonly. I, I think the one thing that I'll add though is I, I do give credence to all the people who are like with their pitchforks saying that it belongs in marketing. A lot of times I, I can see where they're coming from because they're like, look, in my organization, marketing runs pipeline and runs pipeline generation. And in order to do that, I need to be able to control all the resources that create pipeline. That includes, by and large, the inside sales team. And so I give credence to that argument. I give credence to the argument of a lot of the SDR team's success is following up on marketing activities, marketing campaigns, marketing oh, leads, making yeah. sure that they're hitting their asshole. But on the second point, it's that's just, again, Sean, to your point, making sure that the relationship is strong and like, Aligning on SOAs and what does that follow up look like? That's our leadership. Mm. Part. And, yeah, I don't think I, I, I can understand where they're coming from, but it's still from my control. perspective. Yeah, pipeline control. Okay, cool. You're gonna so you're gonna own outbound, inbound. You're gonna own like the guys beating the pavement and doing all that sort of stuff. Again, it's a handover baton. You use that terminology of handing the baton over. It's the same sort of. If your relationship at the top is good, seventy percent of these folks are going to be salespeople. Right, mm-hmm. the others are going to go into crucial roles in either marketing and or customer success generally. Right, having some understanding of the customer and how to sell and how to have those discussions are super important in either of those functions. So having a sales leader educate them and guide them and put that time and effort into them, I think from an, a holistic organization, even if marketing owns pipeline, right, as long as the relationship is good, they can be like, we're in charge of pipeline. You're in charge of those people's journeys, right? So you're managing, you're doing that. The team, we're going to make sure the outcome goes where it's going to go. I get the argument about problem control. I just think it's stupid. It makes no sense. Hey, whilst we're on Hot Topic, the other one is compensation and the bonuses. Sales leaders or sales reps are often, they're on decent comps package and bonuses. Marketers, in my opinion, have always been shortchanged when it comes to that. Any views or thoughts on that, Russell, as to how it can be addressed effectively? You're only going in with spicy topics. Uh, <laughs> Naturally, it comes that way. Here's my perspective. Um, I think the dynamic that you articulated is totally right. And for marketing leaders, a lot of times they'll shy away even from a higher part of variable con- compensation because you know, they're like, I want to be paid on what I can control at the end of the day. But the advice that I give to founders, to CLOs, to CNO, you, like, if your marketing leader is afraid of a higher degree of available compensation that's based off of the company's success and mostly down to revenue, then you're probably talking to the wrong person. And so my argument would be marketing leaders, yes, I think marketers in general should be paid more compared to their sales companies. We should only do that the success of the company. Or if the company is successful, or is generating great revenue or great AR and the marketers should to reap those rewards as well. But again, let's not you can't be you can't have it both ways, right? You can't not mm. have the accountability or not have the accountability and get paid a lot, right? It's like you have to have the accountability. Yeah, that's a fair point. Land this one's not so much of a hot take, it's already happened. We can't control it. AI. It's having an big impact across the board. But marketing probably the most, Russell. Especially with content marketing, even someone like me can jump on ChatGPT, write a few things, and it puts out a reasonably good starting point to work from. What does the future of marketing look like with the AI convergence? Where do you think this is going to lead to? Any crystal ball ideas you in play as to what's going to happen? 
Yeah. One, a new AI with all of your stuff, Ricky. Hundred percent, man. What else would you do? You only have to listen to our listen to our podcast and see the stuff he writes. He goes, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> In all seriousness, what I think it's going is buying large productivity games, right? And marketing leaders need to be ready to adjust. And it's interesting. I was talking to again our former CMO about this last week around the role that AI playing with. In marketing, what's happening now and where's it going in the future? Let's take, for example, the role of a creative director whose role previously was to be an expert in Photoshop, an expert in Lightroom, an expert in editing videos. That person's role now is by and large know how to use the AI with the technology because you can go into Photoshop and say, Hey, I want a, an image or change this background to my brand colors, you know, put a gong logo on. You can do that and, and know. And so it's less about the hard skills of how do I edit this photo, but rather like, how do I know a prompt to get? And it puts a lot of pressure on the role of somebody like a creative But I think what it means for the organization overall is deep productivity gains. Your ability to make an image just went from what might take a designer who you're paying, I don't know, whatever, $50, $60, $100 to three minutes, two months, however long it takes for the software to load, where things going to be done, right? And it's massive productivity gains there. I think massive productivity gains in the world of content, where it's, hey, how do I take this outline and expound upon it such that I have a 1500 word blog post, which what I would have outsourced and paid a writer or something similar to what I just described with a designer. And I get it back. We didn't have a couple of edits. I could get that done with chat GPT in seconds, really. Now, the, the, the thing to keep in mind for marketing leaders is, yes, you're getting these productivity gains. Now, how do you make sure you're using AI in the right way to continue to have a differentiated voice and message and positioning in the market? Because everybody's, by and large, got access to the same tools as long as you know how to use it. It's a lot. It's really easy for us to put out the same stuff. And so it's important for you to make sure that you're using it, in my opinion, as a foundation of your starting place. And I like to tell people that you should use it as your second step. You need to come up with the first step first and you come up with that outline. If you're creating a blog post, then have ChatGPT go to work and then you grade over the finish line. But you got to make sure that you're using it, like I said, strategically, because uh, otherwise you'll end up seeing it as everybody else. It's an important point, this differentiation. Because the reality is like, LinkedIn, so social media marketing is huge now, right? It didn't exist when I started. It's a huge part of how you generate lead flow now. And as of now, every single company can do it really cheap. It might look the same, but they can do it. They can flood LinkedIn. They can flood blog posts. They can have backlinks. They can do all that stuff really cheap now. So it's not going to be the same game it was last year or the year before where people are learning about doing this. Everyone's going to do it. It's going to become like AdWords, right? Everyone's going to do it. And now that it is easy, it's after you get for you to stand outside of the noise. And you stay ahead of what the trends are to make sure that you can take advantage of those things. And in Gong, we're always asking, we invest a lot of that into LinkedIn because by and large, our target persona is in kind of a go-to-market and revenue, mm-hmm. revenue culture. Sometimes marketing as well, customer success. But a lot of those functions spend a whole lot of time on LinkedIn. And so we're constantly, again, got to watch when we're supposed to be in. We're constantly going to, to our LinkedIn team to say, what are the things that are coming up from a 
functionality perspective. What are the things coming up from an algorithm perspective? So that way we can continue to say that when LinkedIn Live came out originally on LinkedIn, the ability to do like a webcast on LinkedIn, we were like the first people in the door and we were consistently doing that because we want to stay out because those things are successful for only so long. And now we're in an AI world, it's an even shorter time frame, right? And you got to make sure you're staying ahead, even if you're using AI to help you out. Nice. Hey, coming back to you, Russell and Gong, what are you most excited about the next phase? I know you've just rolled out a new feature, but what else is on the pathway? Yeah, there's a ton that I'm excited about. Gong's a fun place because it's always like uh, the company is evolving so rapidly, right? But we just rolled out our sales engagement solution over the summer. That if you haven't checked it out yet, I encourage folks to check it out. But we're continuing to advance in all of those areas, be it our core kind of conversation and revenue intelligence platform our forecasting solution that we rolled out a couple of years ago, and now our sales engagement solution that we rolled out over the summer. I think the thing that I'm most excited about is our AI capabilities. And what we're doing on the AI front is just an absolute game changer. We talked about productivity gains that marketing is able to drive. I think we're doing a lot of that for the sales and new to market team as well. It's things like we just released a new functionality the other week called Gong Spotlight where customers are now able to go in and ask a question about any conversation that happened and say things like, what were the customer's pain, point on, pain points on that call? How could I have negotiated better on that call? Or if, if I were Chris Moss, it's my favorite prompt to ask our spotlight feature. We're going to be doing something similar across an entire deal where everyone can get up to speed super fast. So the advances that were made on the AI front is certainly something I'm, I'm super excited about. Does it respond in Chris's voice, like when it tells you what he would have done? Because if it does, I need to test that out. <laughs> Sign me up. Yeah. yeah. We need to get, we need to get rights to do the, the Chris Box voiceover for the guest. Or I'll practice and then we don't need the rights. I'll just do it myself. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Strange version. Version. Yeah. yeah. Nice. I would love to take you through a quick fire round, Russell. Every guest that comes on, we ask them the same question. So most of them are quite easy, but one's the spicy one. So wait till the end for that one. So favorite sports team. I think I can pick it, but let's hear it from you. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt in my mind. It's the Oakland Raiders, <laughs> the American football team. But I call out Oakland specifically. They've now mm. moved to Las Vegas. Mm. And the Oakland Raiders, in my heart, I'm a Bay Area kid, born and, born and raised. Uh, and so them being out in the East Bay, aside from a little bit of time they spent in Los Angeles, it's always the way that I want to the team. Despite now, I get to have a few fun trips a year to Las Vegas, which I can't complain about. Nice. Best of both worlds. Favorite music genre? Again, I think I know the answer, but I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, it's always going to be hip-hop dance. I did hip-hop dance for years, and hip-hop music is always going to be something I listen to. That's Any favorite. particular era? Ooh. I'm sure now this hip-hop stuff would be the one for me. Nice. Any favorite track? Ooh, that deep. It's a bit question. I understand a lot of stuff. It's hard. Maybe something from Tupac would be good. MWN and Massive It's more on the rap side, but on the pop side. But yeah, maybe something from one of those two. And we need to like, do like a yeah, podcast show we'll, just about hip hop one day. I think we'll do a hip hop one. Yeah. We'll do marketing v sales. Yeah. We'll be Keenan to come on. <laughs> we'll get you to come on. We'll be like a marketing v sales, which hip hop is better. That's and go with that. See, and honestly, we'll, we'll practice next time so we can actually get you to do a little hip hop dance thing for us. <laughs> this is a missed opportunity. We definitely would do yeah, another one. Absolutely. I should have thought of it. 
If we're I'm fighting you, I had to do all of this. I could have actually had bad more of an input. If we were real people, we could have made that happen. <laughs> That's it. Favorite movie, Russell? Ooh, favorite movie is also a satisfying. It's got to be something comedy related. Maybe Rush Hour. Rush yeah. Hour is a good one. Yeah. Friday's Anything a good one. Anything with Jackie yeah. Chan, win. Yeah. That's yeah. it. You just spoke earlier about traveling a lot. Any favorite place to visit or the place that you haven't been to yet? The tournament is probably top of the list on the line. That's like first word for Japan. Yeah. Really exciting. First time in Japan, two weeks. We'll be spending two weeks out there. Nice. It's pretty pretty long. Really, really exciting. Awesome, man. And this is is the most controversial one. The important question. There's only one right answer. Peanut butter. How do you like It's got to be crunchy. He's got it. He's got it. We've we've had a pretty rough run lately. We've had a couple of I don't eat it and then some smooths, which is just weirding me out. That's a good answer. Crunchy is the best of both worlds, right? You get the flavor and then you get the texture, which is peanuts. The only one that probably actually has peanut in it. Who knows? This has been a blast, Russell. Thanks again for making the time and coming on the show. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. It was a lot of fun. Thank you.